history of personal computing. Happy Vintage Computer App Appreciation Day. It's a little something we do every two weeks. So welcome back to another episode of the History of Personal Computing eBay Edition podcast. Instead of being like tour guides at a museum, Jeff and I are just two collectors and we're looking at things from that vantage point. Here, we take an informal look at personal computing history through the lens of eBay auctions. And we're joined again on today's show by our very special guest, Chuck Honeyfield. Yay! Welcome back, Chuck. Hey guys. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Two times in a row, we must like you or something. <laughs> did you just, did you like do you like him or something, Jeff? Oh, I've known <laughs> no, him for about shy, half Jeff, my man. life now. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Chuck, we no, never have I, anybody I back. I was I was a huge fan. This is really where this this period in time between the Atari ST and the Amiga is really where I got my major start in in, in having a personal computer and using it. And uh, so I. I just happen to have a lot of experience with the both of them so hopefully i'll bring something to the table for this as well we're counting on you all righty you better well we're never having you back <laughs> <laughs> so again welcome to the show everybody we've got a jam-packed full three people coming at you kind of a show today and uh, we're going to go right into it uh and start off with a little bit of news and things of interest so jeff you got something about amigas yes <laughs> go figure um, Amiga Forever, which is a uh, product produced by, if I pronounce this right, Cloanto. It's a, an Italian company, I believe. Uh, they have um, and updated for, every year too. For many for many years. Well, actually, they haven't updated in like two years. Oh, but what they do is they take they have taken the popular Win UAE or the UAE Amiga emulator and built their stuff around it and then provided value added services and licensed ROMs and everything into a relatively affordable software package, which is basically point and click and you can run Amiga in any Amiga configuration you can think of, or they can think of because they give you a whole bunch to start out with. You want to run an Amiga 600, double click the Amiga 600 entry and boom, it's all configured as an Amiga 600. Um, And I had, I think the 2012 version Mm-hmm. And you know it, it was good, but still, you had to kind of do some things manually. So I saw the uh, the 2016 version was just out, and I thought, you know, it's about time. I I have my entire Amiga hard drive backed up to um, uh, PC, and I can just point Amiga forever to that, and and have my real Amiga running in emulation with all the files and everything that I had originally installed. So it's just I can take it with me now. Um, Neat. And Amiga Forever 2016 really made the interface slick. It's it's just uh, extremely easy to use, and with uh, the original uh, UAE Amiga emulator, to get your screen to like fill like the, fill the monitor completely to get the Amiga emulator to fill the monitor, you always had to play with these controls and adjustments. I mean, it's very versatile, but Cloanto's Amiga Forever just makes it. <clears throat> basically uh, click, you know, one button activation. And I installed it on my Surface Pro, and really it's nice. It's like having my 
Amiga 2000 on the go. I could just fire it up and boom, it's like I got the keyboard and 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 there's my Amiga screen. All the old software that I was using before. Very cool. You never know when you might need an Amiga 600, though, you know? That's true. <laughs> you might just need that to run certain games. And that's the other thing, too, with you know all the this software emulation. They put games on uh, you know virtual disk format. Well, you can mm-hmm. configure the game, the, the ADF files, what they use for Amiga emulation. Uh, you can get the ADF file and then configure your system to play just that game. And then you just like double-click on it from a menu and say... This is this game, and then you've configured it to run on the Amiga 500 in the background, and you just double-click it, and the game's running. And also, did you know that it is not only available for Windows, but also the Mac OS, GNU Linux, Android, Chrome, iOS for the iPhone, and the Wii? Wait, it's on Android? Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Go to uh, other platforms, by platform, and check that out. I actually bought it for my iPad a few years ago. So that's yeah. pretty neat. That was pretty neat. Well, what I was doing recently, and I bought, I bought the uh, not the, I bought the plus edition, the fully downloadable one without all the videos. Um, I bought the plus edition, and I connected my virtual hard drive backups that I had, um, and set it up for an Amiga two thousand, and and there, uh, just like a, I just fired up my Amiga two thousand that's sitting five feet away from me. Um, but what I wanted to do is I had a whole bunch of uh, 3D graphics projects out there that I, that I did a long time ago. I wanted to revive them, re-render them, see what they look like, try to remember what they look like. And so that's what I was doing with it. You know, on the go, I can just uh, um, you know, sit up in the living room with my Surface and run this stuff without having to sit down by the Amiga all the time and you know, wearing that out prematurely. And then I can say, well, hey, what would this look like if it was an Amiga 4000? So I just set it to Amiga 4000 with the high-speed CPU and about 2 gig of RAM, which is something you can't do on an Amiga very easily, <laughs> and um, running the same stuff. I, I forgot how half the software worked, but I, I, I had a lot of uh, projects I did back in the day. I just wanted to revisit them. Very good. So along those same lines, Chuck, why don't you go ahead and jump into to yours? Okay, well, this is kind of a crossover uh, subject here. <clears throat> Mac, uh, we're getting into a little bit of the Macintosh, but the Macintosh moved to uh, from the PowerPC mm-hmm. uh, architecture to Intel architecture back in, what was it, 2006? And yeah, I think so, yeah. When they did that, of course, that pretty much... Uh, meant that anyone that still had a PowerPC device was, well, let's just say that they have a shortened lifespan for their product. Um, Once the software updates stopped coming, and that would have been Snow Leopard would have been the last one uh, that was released for the Mac OS uh, for PowerPC. Um, Anybody that still has a PowerPC is kind of, well, what do I do with this now? Um, You can't get Flash for it. You can't get... Uh, modern browsers for it, although I guess there is one out there, but it's it, it's it's been dying for some time. And, uh, and if you go on on eBay, you can find these things really really cheap now, like a Mac Mini, you know, for like a hundred bucks. And there's for nothing like my wrong big with tower it. Tower G four. Yeah, yeah, uh, but great. but so so I, I saw this the other day, and, and I, it's not new. It's not new, but it is news to me, and maybe it's news to a few other people. Um, there is an operating system called Morph OS. 
And what this does is it essentially sets up an Amiga emulation environment in your PowerPC Mac. So if you own like a, a old a G4 PowerBook or a Mac Mini or a Tower, um, you put this thing in there. And it essentially opens up to what is a modernized Amiga screen. And it runs 68,000-based Amiga software as well as the newer architecture, PowerPC Amiga architecture software. It's, uh, I tried it out on my little PowerPC here, and it was just amazing. I mean, it's, it's the, only, the only downside is it's not free. It's uh, currently 79 euros for the uh, iMac. But uh, I, I can see where if you had one of these machines and wanted to make it useful, and hey, just have it as a toy to play with the Amiga, um, this is a pretty cool deal, and it's really slick. It runs very well. Um, the software they include with it is all like modernized versions of browsers and that sort of thing. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a product out of Germany. Uh, the Germans really had a love affair with the Amiga, and... Uh, uh, I think the Amiga was kept alive in Europe a lot longer than it was in the United States, even after Commodore shut down. And this is just another example of that, where you see that you know here, you know someone's yeah. taking you know uh, what essentially is a a dead operating system and put it into a dead computer, and somehow <laughs> you now have a live computer with a live operating system that that is practical and works well. I think the Amiga was uh, also, I mean. I want to say Sweden too was also it was real big, right? Or the Netherlands? Yeah, it also stayed the, real. The Nordic states Europe, really, yeah. they they really enjoyed the Amiga because of its graphics and sound. <laughs> and I, you know, they they used to make fun of PC users all the time on the boards. I remember that. I mean, so what, what was the one joke I, I heard? Something about you know, <laughs> so comparing PC users to like farmers <laughs> or something, and it was just because it was a translation thing, and it was just hilarious. Because they, they, they especially enjoyed them at their their pot bars. Yeah, they yeah. Did. <laughs> PCs did multimedia too, five and a quarter and three and a half. Right, that, and that was the thing. You know, before multimedia was even a term, yeah, the Amiga was already doing this stuff. Well, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it moving into this episode, but, you know, the Amiga, I think, obviously, it did more than the Macintosh in a lot of ways, too, mm-hmm. you know, early on. So, okay, so wrapping up the, the news area, I just wanted to uh, mention about upcoming Vintage Computer Festivals. And so there's a link in the show notes to what is now called the Vintage – I don't know if we've talked about this before. I think we, we touched on it, Jeff. So it's now called the Vintage Computer Federation Yes. And I think, yeah, we touched on it. But I guess the festivals are still going to be called... the Vintage Computer Empire. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess they're still going to be called the Vintage Computer Festivals, at least for this year. So so the first one coming up is right here in the Atlanta area. So that's the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast. And that's the first weekend of April, the second and third. You decided to get in before East, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wasn't up to me. But um, so that's two months, folks. This is uh, we're recording on February 4th. Excuse me. So this is coming out tomorrow on February 5th. So anyways, that's less than two months away. Excuse me. So that's VCF SE on the first weekend of April. And then two weeks after that will be Vintage Computer Festival East in central New Jersey on April 15th through the 17th. So that's actually now a three-day show. I got my room. I'm ready to go. And uh, Jeff the Trader will be there. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I got to figure out what if I'm going to be a, an attendee or if I'm going to be an exhibitor. You, you never come to to my show. 
My best friend never comes to my show here in the Atlanta area. <laughs> Believe me, there's a lot of people I, I like to see down in the uh, southern part of the U.S. And so according to the, um, you know, the links here and also the Venice Computer Festival Midwest in the Chicago area is uh, way out September 10th and 11th. And then it says Venice Computer Festival West in Silicon Valley is coming soon. Vintage Computer Fest, talking too fast. Vintage Computer Festival Europa in Munich coming soon. And what's this one? Vintage Computer Festival United Kingdom, Bletchley Park coming soon. So we'll have to keep checking back and, and look for those. So it's becoming a federation. Yeah. <laughs> and you will be assimilated. <laughs> well, I know there are some luminaries from the Amiga days that show up to these things, particularly the ones on the East Coast. I know Bill Hurd was there last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I would very much like to. Have you been Talk the one? to some of those guys. I have not yet, no. Uh-oh. Well, you guys live reasonably close to each other, right? You yeah. Sh- you sh- gotta yeah. go. Yeah, you should go, Chuck. Yeah, I really would like to. I'll have to see if we can get off work to do it. Yeah, I plan on going out there right away Friday evening. I know they have a Friday event going on, but I won't be at that one. So Friday evening, I'm heading out there, spending the weekend in Jersey. Wow. So moving along on today's show, we are continuing our coverage of the 32-bit GUI computers. So we've covered the Apple Lisa, the Macintosh, last show Atari ST, and now we move on to what some say was the ST's bitter enemy, the Commodore Amiga. And uh, it was, here's the story behind the Amiga. It was early in the year 1985, and what many call also a bitter case of corporate espionage, secret plans for the first color Macintosh were stolen from Apple headquarters and thus began the beginning of the Amiga project and what would be known as Commodore Gate. (laughs) If you believe CNN. All right, that's all made up by me to, to give a smile. So actually, Wikipedia reports the Amiga 1000 was officially released in July 1985, but a series of production problems meant it did not become widely available until early 1986. The best-selling model, the Amiga 500, was introduced in 1987 and became one of the leading home computers of the late 1980s and early 1990s, with four to six million sold. And I thought uh, that I'll tell you what: if they could have gotten more of those A1200s out, they would mm-hmm. have outsold the 500. Believe me. It was such a good. That's my favorite machine out of all of them. Well, I was surprised to hear this figure. Also, for them saying it was one of the leading home computers for sale the late '80s, which I know it did reasonably well. Was it really one of the leading home computers for sale, though? Uh, If you're counting all sales, then Europe. Yeah, uh, Europe. I mean, if it sold four to six million, man, that's not a bad. uh, You know what? You know what it is. There, there is there is a distinct difference between, or at least there was, between computer users in re- Europe and computer users in the States. Yeah. Uh, in the States, the PC pretty much won the war almost as soon as IBM released it. Any serious, right. quote-unquote, users uh, got PCs because, uh, you know, they were business machines, not game machines. There was this stigma against having graphics and sound because... It right. made you into some sort of teenager playing video games. And remember, video games weren't very old then. I mean, they were <clears throat> real video games, uh, particularly my, microprocessor-based games. They didn't come out until 1977. So here, you know, when something came out in 1985 that had all these wonderful graphics and sound, uh, a lot of people looked at that and said, oh, it plays great games, which did. It played terrific games. 
Yeah. But it was it was usable for other things. The Europeans right. were more willing to overlook the games aspect and real and they would just look at the specs and go, Well, this thing's got stereo sound, it's got four thousand ninety six colors, um, it's relatively uh, you know, decent size, it's not a huge heavy, big, heavy metal box. Uh, I can use it with my TV. I don't have to buy a monitor. These things were important. And and when you look at how much Europeans had to pay for PCs or for for computers in general over what Americans were paying for almost the same exact thing, um, it's one of the reasons why the Amiga and and Commodore in general did so well in Europe uh, was because the pricing made sense to them. Right, And I think they... They were more reason. They would they would look at the actual specs and actually care, <laughs> rather than have the stigma of well, it's got to be for business. You know, I don't want to be a game player. I mean, look at it this way. Uh, this this is great. We were just before before this we were talking about the the term multimedia. Multimedia came out as a way that you could excuse yourself, uh, and and somehow I don't know. You you were now allowed to have graphics and sound, right? I remember back in 91 or no, 93, 93, I was working for General Electric and we had gotten in some computers that had business audio, business, business, what's business audio. So I'm looking at it and okay, there's no speakers with it. There is a sound card installed. So I open up the machine and here is one of those beeper speakers inside that's connected directly to the sound card internally. In other words, the visual of having sound on your desk was not yet acceptable in the business world. You could have great sound, but it had to be inside the computer, business audio. And it was that attitude that really uh, damaged both the Amiga and the ST for serious usage among business people because they would, you know, IBM was pretty much the standard. And nobody could accuse you of sitting around playing video games with an IBM because, quite frankly, uh, they were bad at it. Uh, kind of an opinion here too that I think what so first off I think one of the biggest things that harmed Commodore was their lack of uh, marketing expertise. So well, obviously, no doubt there. obviously they didn't market the thing well enough to show people how compelling it was. You know, go go on the price match. Like, look what this can do for the price. You know, this doesn't compare. This doesn't compare. But you know, I think believe it or not, I think something else that might have hurt it because they could have just totally pressed it as a game machine, sell it as a game machine and multimedia solely, and then. It catch on so so well that people go well. I can do other cool stuff with it. You know, go on that angle. But I kind of think the the Nintendo uh, Entertainment Center, believe it or not, I think it had an effect on harming you, you know machines like the Atari ST and the Amiga because because you had this really low cost. You know, you got it. You know, the um, NES was pretty compelling for what it. You know, for the first time, I think you really had arcade quality games in your house for cheap. And I think that had something to do with harming sales. You had more than one fire button, too. Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, you know, even though the Amiga could do better, could do more, but I think, you know, that took a lot of attention. And, you know, and obviously that that set the stage now for where you have gaming platforms, you know, that standalone gaming platforms, even though computer gaming, you know, kept going. So, anyway. I have an interesting story. I'll make it quick. Sure. Um, When I was in my senior year in high school, this would have been 1984. Uh, I had a friend that I used to geek around with, and you know we'd compare notes. He had he had a Vic Twenty at the time, and uh, we did a little hacking on that and on my Atari at home. 
And one day I come over to his house and he says, you won't believe what I just saw on TV. I'm like, what's what was it? He said last night they were talking about this machine called Amiga Lorraine or something. And it does 4,096 colors and it has stereo sound and they're going to sell it for under 500 bucks. And I just looked at him and I said, that's, that's not even pot. There's no way. There's no way they could actually do that. And there's, you know, that doesn't, because it was so far. This was, this was, believe, this is the spring of 1984. So this is before Commodore had even bought the technology. And they were out shopping it around. And I guess there was a news report that came out about the Lorraine before it was officially the Amiga 1000. And I was just, and at the time they were just selling it as, as a, uh, I guess as a a conglomeration of chipsets. Sure, it could be a computer or it could be a video game system, whatever whatever company wanted to buy it, the technology was there. Well, it was and like a proof of concept was. platform. Yes. And, and he said it just, he said he didn't see how they'd be able to sell all those boards for $500 either, because this is before they actually had it in the Silicon. He said, they just showed like eight different boards all wired up and connected together because it was all virtual, virtual chipset. They hadn't actually done the chipset yet. So <laughs> hmm. that was pretty cool. I wish I'd seen that. And, you know, and again, you know, so I'm a, you know, longtime Mac aficionado. So, you know, the Mac came out at $2,500 mm. in 1984. And yeah, it was pretty amazing and all this stuff. But it's just, you know, even a year later, you compare it to the potentially, I've often thought that if I had found out about the Amiga first, you know, especially with color and stuff, I might have, you know, jumped on the Amiga platform and probably save some money. <laughs> I could have owned a computer a lot sooner because it took me until late 1989 to be able to buy my first Mac. I couldn't afford one. You know, the other the other thing to consider, though, is that when the ST and the Amiga first showed up in 85, 86, um, the operating systems for both of those machines were not exactly the most stable. Uh, um, yeah. so, I mean, I'm not saying that the Mac was 100% either, but at least you knew that when you ran the major applications, you... Yeah, you, you, it would typically just run. It would run well. Um, there were a lot of early problems with the Amiga's operating system, and it was one of the reasons that drove me to the ST initially, because there were far less. There appeared to be far less with the ST, at least in the beginning. As the ST line diversified, that was a different situation because when the Mega came out and they made changes to TOS, um, that really hosed a lot of software. Or the software would just act funky if it did work. Um, and yet with the Amiga, you had a little bit of that too, but for the most part, things continued to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they didn't, you could just load the OS you wanted, if you had enough memory, that is. But if you could, you could just load the OS you wanted and it would run for sure. So, it, you know, I when I jumped ship, it was when the 500 came out. Um, and it was a lot more affordable than the 1000 was. And, uh, you know, at the time... The other thing that I really liked about it was something called preemptive multitasking. That was where you could run multiple programs at the same time. And, you know, I could be online and at the same time I could, you know, be typing something in in a word processor. And, you know, all these things were happening in real time. You couldn't do that on other platforms, at least not to that degree. And when you saw pulling down the top of the screen and, you know, something else running behind it and pull down another screen and something else running behind it and everything's running seamlessly, that was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. So, um, Chuck, you mentioned about the Lorraine 
And so I'm yes. just going to mention there's a, a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia article. It's specifically to the concept and early development section. Of course, you could peruse the entire article, but it talks about the beginnings of uh, it talks about that. Uh, so the machine was originally called the the Lorraine by uh, High Toro was the High name Toro. of the company. Yep. So so check that out. It was shown um, the board prototypes and all that at the 1984 CES show with the famous Boing Ball demo. And uh, anyway, so some, some interesting stuff there. Um, there's a, uh, I, I supported an Amiga documentary that's about to come out. Um, yeah, I did Viva too. Amiga. Yeah, Viva, Viva Amiga. Amiga yep. And so I know it's done and it's been previewed and stuff. And I guess it'll be available to us, the supporters and general public, I think next month. Awesome. So, um, so that looks really good. So check it out. But um, anyway, so why don't we move right into the machines and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. Talk about them. Look at them. So, so Jeff, you lead the way. All right. Uh, one thing we don't have a problem with this week is availability of Amiga systems on eBay. Uh, we didn't have to go. <laughs> I've been though. I was surprised when it comes to the early ones, though. They're getting a lot harder to the find. Thousands. Yeah, and two thousands. Oh, the two thousands. I couldn't find. Yeah, I, I found one that didn't work. And uh, I just, well, I I started out with a five hundred only because. That was my first Amiga. I I got mine from a. I think I spent all my tax return in 1989 <laughs> to get it, and I bought it from Electronics Boutique. Actually, no, it was Games and Gadgets. Chuck knows the one that's at the Park City Mall. Um, I bought it there. I, they didn't even sell it on the floor. I had to buy it and have it sent to me. Yeah, you know, wow. we didn't have we didn't have live internet tracking of stuff. It's like I gave them what was it seven hundred. $800 after I got everything I wanted, and then I waited and waited. A week goes by, a week and a half goes by. Two and a half weeks later, uh, an Amiga 500 ends up at my door. Uh, so that was a happy day for me. Uh, and it's it's similar to, in fact, my Amiga ended up a lot like the way this one is in this auction. It This one is an Amiga 500 with the standard uh, crooked space bar. Um, they they tend to do that over time, at least. The I've seen that before on them, Space too. bar is a little, I guess it depends on which side you press the most. And I don't know how it is. I don't know if, if you keep tapping on the one side, it lets <laughs> loose and pops up, or if the other side wears down a little bit. Um, this guy, whoever owned this, might have had a heavy left thumb for a space bar. Mm. And he has an external PC power supply. I've seen that had, before, too. And, and it works. Uh, yeah. when, the, when the regular power supply goes out, when mine went out, I just went out and spent, I see, they were expensive at the time, 30 bucks for a PC power supply, did some rewiring of the cable, and it worked great ever since. In fact, I think I still have that power supply. I guess it's technically not dangerous or anything, right? It's not. You Having just have your, your plus and minus 5 and 12 volts, and you just, as long as you put them to the right wires, you're good to go. Well, I mean, it being exposed, that the internal power supply like that, it's made nah, to be internal, not, but it's, it's not, not really. No. In fact, it helps air out the power supply, but the Amiga 500 didn't draw that much power um, unless you had a lot of accessories hooked up. And then even then, some of the accessories had their own power supplies. So, You know yeah, what I really is- like about this one? This He's got some great pictures in here. And you look at the the old motherboard, and there's very little that's soldered on, right? I mean, there's a few of the RAM, like the, the, the half RAM is soldered on, but they socketed a lot of these chips. Yeah, because some and accelerator cards would go underneath right in. the CPU. I my the one yep. in my Amiga 2000 is the same way. It works on a 500 
or or 2000 you pull out the cpu put this board in place then put that cpu back in the board and you can switch between 68000 and i think 68030 is typically what they put in them i mean this is this is something that a lot of computers even then did not do you know they just soldered stuff in there and, and it was like they they actually cared to you know to <clears throat> they knew that these chips could fail particularly the uh uh, not what was it that well, there was a serial chip that would fail, and uh, oh, the uh, UARTs, this uh, yeah, uh, the UARTs, UARTs would fail. Sixty-five twenty-twos. Yes, and that happened whenever you uh, sometimes if you plugged the mouse in when it was when the machine was on, you could blow one. Um, sometimes it could come from your modem. It, I mean, I saw that time and time again, and it was just a matter of replacing the chip, which you know was very easy to do back then, and that was that was pretty cool. And yeah, this, this is uh, this guy a, includes that that floppy disk uh, emulator. Yeah, that's for a, USB. It, it looks like a good deal, really. You can still for, get those. Yeah, for for the price that this sold for, you can get those floppy, floppy disk emulators for like fifty, sixty bucks. That's you know half the cost of this alone. Plus, you get an Amiga five hundred to uh, to work with it. And let's see, he's he's only doing the Amiga five hundred. He doesn't know no monitors. Um, he has a PS2 adapter with a compact mouse, so he has one of those uh, mouse adapters. So if your Amiga mouse goes bad, you can use a standard PS2 mouse. Uh, they, just a little plug-in adapter, an inline adapter for that. And case is slightly yellowed. Then again, what's new with these? Um, Workbench 1.3, 1.2. So this didn't have the Kickstart update. Probably has still. Probably still has Kickstart 1.2 in it. Is that a big deal at this point? Well, there, some stability came in um, Kickstart 1.3, and then all the new, better look came out of Kickstart or and Workbench 2.0. And these can be upgraded to 2.0 rather easily. It's just a matter of uh, swapping. In fact, in the first picture beside the CPU, I think that's the ROM chip right beside it, uh, the smaller one. And you swap that out with a, uh, a new Kickstart ROM, and you just boot with the appropriate kickstart floppy, and then you have a new version of the operating system. Hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I have a 500 to talk about myself, but I think, so what do you think, Jeff? I think that was a pretty good deal, right? And a good representation maybe of a average, not average, maybe what for, you get, but well, for what this comes with, maybe above average. that's not bad. Yeah. It's not bad. Especially since it comes with that uh, USB drive, which basically just goes in like a floppy drive. And then you just choose which virtual disk you want to mount in that drive. Mm-hmm. And then the Amiga recognizes it and it moves along with it. I still consider getting one of those for my Amiga 2000. It just I haven't gotten there yet. Well, it would more likely fit that better than it does in this oh, 500. Yeah, spare, well, actually, my spare bay has a hard drive in it. But, oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I can always use an external floppy and, and replace the internal floppy. That's true. Features. But that's it, yeah, you can still do stuff with it. Uh, and I think for the hundred twelve fifty here, well, for me it was forty bucks shipping if I bought it because it's coming from Amarillo, Texas. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's a little high. I think that person's making a couple bucks so that way. It's not but. bad. This will this will get you going, and and, yeah. and then you'll have stuff you can do. You can download ADF disk files off the internet and get started with this thing right away. You don't have to try to convert everything to floppy. Crazy. It is crazy. Anyway, that was the Amiga 500. My next one. And you, you found an original. I did, because I got in first. 
<laughs> clean. I used to have one. I've had all the, these different Amigas, but no more. All right, Amiga 1000, the vintage and rare Amiga with the Amiga monitor and software. Yeah, actually, this is a really good deal, especially with that checkmark monitor, as they call it. it right. A little color checkmark in the corner. It's a shipping, I love though. That monitor. <laughs> that, I love that monitor because it's got a non-glare screen, and it's, it's bright enough, and it also supports um, – um, you. I had an Amiga with uh, a Commodore 128 when I first got my Amiga. And I had this monitor. In fact, who did I buy that from? What that I, used from somebody. I used to have one of those too with the Amiga 1000, which I didn't have it originally. Obviously, I got it. Yeah, later and the, on. the checkmark monitors apparently are it, getting more and more rare. Well, isn't it a 1084s? Well, it's, is, no, is, the 1084s is uh, has the stereo sound. This the the one on this uh, auction does not have the stereo sound. Oh, but I think it's the same S display. Has except shiny for that, screen. Has okay. The, well, there's a 1080, and then there's a 1084. But the 1084S is a different one. I have a 1084S hooked up to my, to my Amiga 2000, but I have a 10. I have a monitor like this, which I believe is just the 1084. I may be wrong. I'd have to go get it. Look I mean, yeah, look at the battle chest graphics on that. I mean, for 1988, yeah. that was. And I yeah. love the non glare part of it. But this monitor also worked with composite for my Commodore 128, and it also worked with the uh, digital uh, or the um, yeah the digital nine pin um, output like the CGA output that mm -hmm. came out of the Commodore 128 for the 80 column mode so I have like three different video modes that that single monitor supported it was great um, but this one looks like it's in really good condition and the price 180 is actually really good yeah if you so over the shipping cost right you know I bet he could have I'll bet he could have added another hundred dollars to that had he taken a picture do you know what picture he I did. think he should have taken what? Open that machine up and look at the case. See if it has any signatures or something in it? It will have signatures. All the 1000s did. The 1000s, okay. they, they actually, the top of the case has all the signatures, including the one from um, the chipset designer, the graphic chipset designer, and his dog. And the dog, the dog print is on there, too. <laughs> and what's really damning about it is it has all the original Apple engineers' signatures in there from when they stole it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yeah, uh, 135 shipping to me. I guess it's a little bit cheaper to go to you, uh, David. No, same. Uh, so that must have been a flat free. rate. Thing. Flat rate. Yeah. Unless, unless this is one of those uh, free local pickups, a lot cheaper. Um, Which you know, no shipping more. a monitor nowadays is, I can imagine, gets pretty expensive. No that still seems like oh. a lot. That's where my uh, college drama mater is, uh, Florida Institute of Technology, Melbourne, yeah. That's not too far out, like, of Orlando area, I think. No, it's not. Um, well, it's all online for me, but... Uh, uh, well, yeah, I'll tell you uh, what, uh, that 1084 monitor, I can't say enough about that either, because the, the, the quality, compared to, especially if you've been used to using, like, a TV, and then you saw this... Mm -hmm. Um, it was as good as when you finally got to see like a VGA monitor yeah. doing 256 colors, you know, compared to that. It was that much better and that much clearer. And, and a really uh, low dot pitch, so it was crisp. I think it was, yeah. um, for lack of a better way, wasn't it like, wouldn't it have been equivalent to maybe an in-between EGA, VGA sort it's of? probably more EGA than... Uh, I think it, it was better better the, than EGA, though. Well, you, had, the, you know what you had? You had color, but not resolution. Mm. Yeah. You know, okay. it was still a 15 kilohertz monitor, so it right. did not had, do VGA resolutions. 
your your refresh rate was low, so it was like watching a TV in that respect. You had a lot of color, so it was like TV in that respect. But it was a lot sharper than a TV. It appeared to be sharper than a TV. In fact, so I would hook would, up a uh, uh, VCR to the to mine, yeah, and that would be my too. TV tuner. It would be my TV also. You know, or it was like a, a high quality video, really high end video arcade, where it was like a really high end TV sort of yeah, a it screen, just had right? A lot going for it, and it was kind of an expensive monitor at the time, but you did really get your money's worth out of it. Um, and and still, that non glare display that's it really is easy watching that thing a long time, which you know I did when I had my Amiga, mm-hmm. uh, as oh, I yeah. stared at the monitor a lot. And and I <laughs> yeah. still have my monitor. It went bad on me once, and I think it was like one resistor that needed to be fixed. I fixed. It's still going strong for me now. Uh, in fact, I've taken it to VCFEs last year for my Amiga demonstration, my video toaster demonstration, and I also hooked it up for my TI ninety nine demonstration uh, the year before. So it's very you know, versatile. One of the monitor. things that I will say about the one thousand is, other than the stability, which was mainly due to the OS. The the hardware itself was pretty cool. The only problem, hardware wise, was the sidecar adapters. Oftentimes, were uh, you, you would get one and you'd constantly have to adjust it because the machine would you know freeze or whatever. Um, that connector had some issues. They improved with the five hundred, but other than that, um, they got a lot of things right. I mean, it looked really professional. It looked high tech, and it also had. Um, Real color video out the back. If you wanted to put it into a composite monitor or whatever, you had recorded color. on a VCR. Yeah. And when we'll get to the 500, you, you'll hear me complain about that because I still to this day can't believe that for the saving 25 cents, they put a black and white composite on the back of the 500. And then if you wanted color composite, you had to add the seven inch long thing to the back of your monitor, your computer. To the be A520. able to get color, com- yeah, the A520 to get color out of it. That was the most penny-wise, pound-foolish thing I think they ever did with the, with the Amiga series, honestly. Because that machine was perfect for multimedia. It was perfect for signage and all sorts of things. And then who would use black and white in the first place? With the, why would you own an Amiga if you didn't, if you didn't have <laughs> right. a color TV? Right? I mean, what's the point? So then why would you put... Well, clearly this was a decision made by committee, right? You know the engineers didn't want to do that. There's no way. Yeah. So, anyway. So, that's one thing I can say. This is one of those machines that I absolutely drooled over when it first came out. Um, I just uh, really fell in love with it. And then I started using it at a a dealership and realized, well, it's still a little unstable. (laughs) So... And there's a long story behind that. I won't get into it. I read the, the Commodore book on this, and basically at the last minute, Commodore, they already had an OS they were going to use, a back-end part of the OS, which was Unix-based. And uh, when they got to the end finalizing with the third party, that the third party wanted outrageous amounts of money for it, and then they decided to do something in-house. And the thing they had to do in-house, uh, unfortunately, they just didn't have the time. Hmm. And uh, it took them a while to get things straightened out. <laughs> they didn't have the time. It was only, only their job. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was well, all management. Here's, yeah. you know, here's nine months to come up with an entirely preemptive 
you know, multitasking system and file. I think it was the file system that, that, that they were negotiating for. You know, and a file, a file system is something non-trivial, right? I mean, that's going to be a, a big part of a computer, any computer system. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway there, Jeff, what's the next one? Oh, my yeah. holy grail. Jeff? The Commodore Amiga <laughs> 4000. Do you got one? Um, yeah. Do you? No, I don't oh. want one. That's my holy grail. <laughs> Look at the price of this one. You you can see why I don't have one. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I know people who have owned them, and I don't. I can't get a hold of them now. I'd like to get a hold of them and see if I can wheel and deal with them. There's there's somebody in the next county for me who um, had one, and I think he still has it. But I haven't talked to him in about a decade. So anyway, that's that's my job to you know if I want to get one, I have to work my deals or. Get a lucky uh, eBay auction. Anyway, this this Amiga four thousand is basically, for, for all intents and pur- purposes, it's the top of the line. Um, they had tower versions of the Amiga four thousand that were a little bit better, more configurable, whatever it is. The Amiga four thousand is the, the is the flagship. Uh, in in hindsight, um, it has the enhanced graphics chipset, the AGA chipset, which does. Uh, where the Amiga supported the original Amiga supported four thousand colors. This one, uh, and it was four thousand. Yeah, it was four thousand out of a palette of four thousand, right, Chuck? Um, yeah. This one can support up to two hundred and eighty-two thousand colors at once out of a palette of sixteen million. Um, so they definitely enhanced the graphics, and you can have um, the original Amiga is the best you can do for your workbench screen. That, that's the you know the operating system part of it is at the most 16 colors. Well, this one will let you have a 256-color desktop. Um, so a lot of major enhancements, a lot of better memory management, support for high-density uh, floppy disks, and support for additional hardware like um, you know video, some video toaster systems. and Yeah, better, better support. Hard drives. Because yep. the, original, the original Amigas didn't have that internal. This did. That's right. You, you had a you SCSI could, controller inside. Yep, what, no, it had IDE. You had IDE inside, and you could actually add, and I did. I actually added an IDE uh, CD-ROM to our, and that was a big deal. It was a 1X CD-ROM, um, but we added a, a wow. 1X CD-ROM to the insides, and that was just the most amazing thing because you, you'd see there were two ways to load the video toaster. Uh, video toaster was a... Uh, kind of a you know a mixing video mixing board that you could put in an Amiga, and there were two ways to buy it. Uh, I think this is when 3.0 came out. It came either on like something like 70 floppy disks or one CD. Um, Your choice. <laughs> my video toaster is 30 some floppy disks. Yeah, and that's at 720k disks. I just but, I yeah just maybe the toaster 4000 had uh, more. That's what it was. I know. I know it had more than that because I sat there all night putting those things in there, praying that none of them were bad. <laughs> and then later on, when I did an installation later, it, I, I actually had a CD-ROM with which to uh, to install it. And boy, that was a lot easier. Still took a while though, because remember, one X that's pretty slow. You know, if you have uh, yep. sixty minutes, seventy minutes worth of data on a CD, it takes sixty, seventy minutes to pull it off of there. And the other nice thing about the 4000, or should I say the AGA series itself, um, is the fact that it supported uh, VGA-style monitors a lot better. Uh, the original Amiga series, if you try to do 
high res, 640 by 400 pixels, you would see a noticeable flicker in the display because it's drawing every other uh, scan line just to keep up with the slow refresh rate of the monitor. So you tend to get a lot of flicker. You'd have to go to lower resolutions like 640 by 200. Uh, for the Amiga 4000, you can Which do made 640 the pixels look really interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, but for the Amiga Four Thousand, you don't. You can use a higher, what they call a higher scan rate monitor, a VGA monitor that scans at a higher frequency, so you get a rock solid, high resolution picture. So it was easier on the eyes in, in that sense. See, see, um, Mac users and PC users don't understand this concept. The Amiga was designed around NTSC because the Amiga was originally designed to be a really great video game. So when you mm. look at the chipset of the Amiga, everything about the Amiga was designed first for TV and the low refresh rates of TV. And that's why the earliest Amigas, without any additional hardware, uh, they were designed for 15 kilohertz refresh, which is impossibly slow by today's standards. But at the time, it, had, it came with its own set of advantages. One of the things that enabled it to do because of that low refresh rate is that that meant then you could do other things – with the speed that you had left over, you know, like add extra color on screen. So what you what you lost in refresh, you gained in color. What you lost in refresh, you gained in resolution. Because very very few computers could do 640 by 400 at that time, regardless of whether or not it was flickery video or not. Very few could actually do it and do it as well as the Amiga did. Um, and those that did, well, then their price tags, look at the Mac. You, like you said, it was 2500 bucks for that little itty-bitty screen, which was like, what was it, 512 by something or other. Um, mm-hmm. It was stable. I could give it that. But, again, you know, you, 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 there's, there were trade-offs. What can you do? The best thing about the Amiga is, is because of its video compatibility, that enabled things like the video toaster to happen. Because the video toaster was essentially just accelerating what was already there. It was just throwing data around. And it was very, very good at what it did. And it couldn't have happened on the PC at the time because you wouldn't have been able to afford it. Well, the, the PC version of the Video Toaster was actually a Video Toaster cart in a Amiga 2000 with a rebranded case that connected right. by a serial <laughs> port to the PC. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, um, I, I guess I was... I'll go to mine. Are we, okay. Are we yeah, done, Jeff. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm done with my set. I, my wish list is over. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Chuck. I start my wish list with my favorite uh, Amiga. Um, this is my absolute favorite, which is the Amiga 1200. Um, and uh, looks like I got the wrong link here. And, uh, and you see. have yes, one of those. I did. But you know what? I'll just find it again. Give me just a second here. And there it is. It's the very first listing on eBay for the Amiga 1200. This guy's got a complete system up here, and he wants 700 bucks. Your what do you get for no 700 good. bucks? Well, you get the 1200. You get the power supply. You get a mouse. You get all the looks like all the starting disks and the stuff that came with it. Um, he's got it upgraded to the most recent 3.1 ROM, so that's cool. Um Hey, wait, and Chuck, is it is it the six ninety nine buy it now one? Yes, it is. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll upgrade the link. Go ahead. Yeah, because I, I didn't so, get that when I searched for Amiga twelve hundred. So holy cow! Um, oh, there it is. Okay. Did they get this right? Man, did they get this right? They got <laughs> this right. There was nothing that was wrong with this machine, in my humble opinion. This was the most perfectly balanced Amiga, especially for the price. Good lord, this was great. 
you had color color composite out so you could hook it right up to a vcr or up to a tv you had stereo out you had an rf modulator so okay then you don't have composite well then you can hook it up to a channel three or four so you didn't have to buy a monitor this was one of the last computers out on the market where you could just hook it up to a tv um if you think about it after amiga passed after commodore passed that was the last computer that you could just hook up to a TV. Hmm. After that, you had to buy a monitor, no matter what the system. Hey, let me ask the question. So did 1200 and 600 come out at the same time? Um, they did, but I think the 600 was out sooner. But this Just is a wee bit sooner, because yeah. we had that show at the uh, the Market Pro show or something like that, Chuck, where you brought all the that equipment over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and wasn't there... Go ahead, sorry. The six hundred, the six hundred was just doing the market at the time, and and I had my five hundred looking like venerable there. But um, yeah, the six hundred was a nice little compact, uh, modern version, like a parts reduced version of the Amiga five hundred. Well, but wasn't there something sort of subpar about the six hundred? Oh yeah, it's like an Amiga five hundred. It's like an it's older five hundred. <laughs> okay, but it's, it's it's smaller and it, the, the, it's smaller. It's it's lighter. Well, weight. not subpar compared to the twelve hundred. I just thought like. Well, I, I the, thought of one of those two models. There was something that wasn't particularly desirable about it, or whatever. At the, oh, at yeah, the, time. the 600 doesn't have the newer graphics. Okay, uh, it actually so came this out was, brand new with the older graphics technology. Okay, but it did have one thing going for it over the 500. It had an IDE, uh, uh, had IDE capabilities, and it also had a PMC, a PCMCIA slot, like laptops were having at the time uh-huh. for expansion. So you can actually stick memory cards in the side. Or so this is really the one you wanted then. At the well, time, the 1200 right? is the one you wanted. You got the new chipset, small design, and the IDE capabilities. Well, you, got, you also got the you got the 020 as well. Okay. You got the updated processor. It ran faster. Yeah, I see. You got you got a uh, uh, a port underneath that was designed specifically for adding uh, faster processors, or if you wanted a coprocessor for math, you could do that. Um, Six hundred bucks thing, in the United States in nineteen, and I'm holding a twelve hundred right now. October nineteen ninety two for six hundred bucks. Yeah, that think about how much way cheaper that was than a yes a Mac at the time. And this to me, this was this was like the holy grail of Amigas. This hmm. was the Amiga that could have been the most popular and the most the best selling. We had customers coming in. I, I used to work for a Commodore dealer. We had customers coming in. Are they in yet? Are they in yet? Are they in yet? We didn't know what the story was. I know that I had been calling Commodore saying, hey, listen, uh, we really need some of these 1200s. Oh, we're backordered. Oh, you've got 600s, though. You want 600? No, nobody wants the 600. <clears throat> this was a case of, again, Commodore either didn't care or they were just inept. And, and there's arguments either way. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that say that you know uh, management purposely downed Commodore because they were able to all pull out their golden parachutes and you know uh, the, the executives did very well regardless of whether the company went down the tubes regardless of all the people, the dealerships um, the people making the hardware for these machines, the, the amount of people that were hurt when Commodore went under I think was seriously underestimated and including all the dealerships and, and, and parts manufacturers in Europe and this was a case where this was the machine, this machine should have been out and could have been out two years before it was released. And then by the time they got it built, it was too late. They couldn't, they couldn't even afford to pay the part, the, uh, for the parts to build it, which is why they were in such short demand. 
And the 600s, oh, they had plenty of those. And whoever came up with the idea that, oh, yeah, we should we should definitely buy more parts for the 600, I, I don't know. I don't know what was – I have no idea what the thinking was. All you had to do was just expose a few users to either one of these machines. And, of course, yeah. the advantages of the 1200, the graphics alone um, were, were – I mean, and it was snappier. That was something else you noticed right away too. Um, the 500, it, you know. When you'd watch Windows draw, you could watch them draw. Okay, you could see what it was doing. You could see. We we take it for granted. We take a window on Windows these days and move it around, and the whole window moves, and there's no there's no slowdown. You're right. You know, the whole thing just moves, glides across. Back then, when you moved the window, sometimes you'd watch it draw. You know, man, with the 1200, you didn't see that. It was snappy. It was it was really really amazing to see. And you could use the higher resolutions a lot more easily because because of that snappiness. Well, um, the OTO processor is, of course, like what the the first Mac color had. So right. that that was a big difference in the processor there and stuff. Well, the, you know, you weren't relying with the with the early Macs. You were relying on the processor to do everything. Mm-hmm. You, know, you move the mouse up, the processor's moving. The, you know, moving the mouse on screen. You move a window up, the processor's redrawing the window. Yeah, the, the advantage that the Amiga always had was that it had coprocessors to, to do that work for you. When you were moving the mouse around, that was a sprite on screen. All it was doing was changing coordinates of a sprite. Um, so you had you had an innate smoothness with the Amiga that you did not have with the Mac at the time um, because of that coprocessing. Now Steve Jobs took a look at the Amiga and said, "Too many chips, too many <laughs> parts," um, because he considered that to be inelegant. But the reality is, what do we have today? Well, we've got GPUs for you know doing graphics, right? Um, sound parts is so better here. Yeah. Sound is so trivial in PCs that yeah, okay. Um, there's a small chip that does A to D conversion, and the processor basically does it on the fly. But it's so small compared to the rest of the things the processor can do. You know, it, it's amazing to see how all this is integrated too, because I mean, these new chipsets. The, the north bridge, the south bridge, your memory controller, the chip, you know, the, the CPU itself, sometimes even the graphics chip are incorporated on one die now. Back then, all that had to be separate, or you had to make a compromise and say, well, the CPU is going to do everything. And oftentimes with the PC, the CPU did everything. So anyway, so this is the 1200. I, I, like I said, I, I just... You're going I down think, a rat hole. <laughs> I think Commodore, they got it, they got it right. They got it right, and unfortunately... Sounds like it. It was too a late. A little too late, yeah. It was just too late. So, all right, my next one here is the uh, Amiga 3000, which is the video toaster. It has a video toaster card in it. Now, my understanding, and maybe, Jeff, you can correct me on this, but the video toaster for the 3000 initially was not real stable. There was some I'm sort of sure. voltage issue. I'm not sure, never owned a 3000, but <clears throat> I think it had to be a Zorro 3 card, so it had to be, what, the toaster 4000 card that we got. Yeah, I think that's what it was. People were cludging the old one in there, and then there were, like, mixed results. So we never did that at the dealership. Uh, we would never Yeah, you're putting a card designed for a slower bus into a, car, a slot that is pin-compatible, but it's a faster bus, so I right. can see where you would have problems with that. So this guy clearly was using this as some sort of a, a video editing station. Um, he's got himself here a little remote control uh, for the uh, probably for the, the going going back and forth between the film and only looking at here. Yeah, I mean he's 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 clearly used this for that, and it's 
the thing about the 3000, man, this thing, uh, as opposed to like a 1000, which was made of plastic, uh, the 3000 was, was really metallic. <laughs> it was, it was fairly heavy and it was well built. Um, and it had a pretty slick look to it too. I thought it was decent. Um, it came with a faster processor, came with the, uh, the 020 or the 030 actually. And the three thousand. Am I right about that, Jeff? It was the O three O. I believe it? it was the O three O. It came with it. Was it was in a class by itself in the Amiga line because it still had yeah. some incompat. Like you couldn't game on it like you could with the five hundred. Some right. things wouldn't work. But it yeah, was designed. Uh, it was actually was, designed to be a workstation. Yeah, it was. It, it was it, the biggest issue with it was the OS version when I think it was two O came out on the three thousand first. And when that came out, a lot of games went, you know, said, uh, I'm not running well. Even the original chipset was there with an enhanced chipset. Um, and that might have introduced a few compatibilities. It was the uh, the operating system that kind of caused issues. But if you were doing work, if you were doing video work or, or anything, the 3000 was a great choice because it came with a VGA out. So you were able to plug in a standard VGA monitor into the thing and get a really stable picture at a high resolution. And that was worth its weight in gold right there. Especially if, like you said, you were using this as a workstation. At the time, I guess it was your AOC or NEC monitors. Right. And like Jeff, I also was a big fan of the 4000. Um, this uh, next one here is a uh, 40040. Uh, you could get a 4000 that did not have the 040 processor, by the way. Um, some of them had the 030 processor running at 25 megahertz. Um, wow. This particular one is the full-blown uh, 040, and look how much it is. It's 2400 bucks is what the guy wants. Yeah, will he get uh, it? Well, he, he might. He has he the might. Picasso board in it and everything. He's got yeah. the Picasso board. The Picasso board is a, it's a Picasso 2. Um, does extremely high resolutions. It's a video accelerator board. Um, it, uh, it you know it does 24-bit color. Um, and and it really no monitor, <laughs> mouse, or keyboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uses PS2 keyboards. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, it does. there's a little issue with the the Amiga keys and stuff. I think the control. You know, I mean, was Commodore ball. releasing this just before they locked the doors? Yes. Yeah. Going out of business, I mean. Yes. Um, the 4000T was their last, that was their last great machine. This is the desktop version of it, but it was essentially the same machine. Hmm. Uh, I think you had some more slots in the T. Um, but man, this thing was a screamer. Um, when we got in a 4000-040, first of all, it was the 040. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it took them a long time to come out, too long, too long to come out with the 040. But when it did... Um, we were just blown away by the amount of power the thing had and how much faster everything ran. And when you render graphics, especially yes. oh, yeah. it, we do 3D graphics or anything, especially on the video toaster. Um, man, this was just. Well, you know, was, it was the same path in the Mac world as far as you know the um, Motorola processors. Right. So that's right. Um, and and this is the thing: Motorola could not compete. Is what it comes down to. They could not compete with Intel, uh, and they really couldn't compete with PowerPC. Uh, and they didn't want to. That's mm -hmm. what it came down to. They just didn't want to. If they wanted to, they would have continued. The, the reality is is that they had a great architecture uh, for its day. But when you started looking at reduced instruction sets and, and the kind of trickery that Intel had to do to get their chips accelerated, it, Motorola was in no position to continue. And, uh, you know, the, the Amiga eventually made the transition to PowerPC, but only until after Commodore was long gone. 
Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, good machine. Um, I'm not sure what you would have used it for other than the video toaster and maybe some graphic work if you were a graphic artist. I would have um, put it to use it for those. Good at, it wasn't real good graphics. at playing Amiga games because a lot of them wouldn't work. Um, it looks some like of them too, do and some of them don't. This it was in a got over 1,900 games. All right, well that's cool. It was in a Commodore. Um, I don't know um, if he's doing that through loading uh, an earlier version of Workbench or what. It looks like it was but, in like yeah. a Commodore PC case. Just in a right. It it kind of like that. That's what they put. Like, I'm looking here. Yeah, yeah. This one had a battery problem because if you look at the keyboard on the back. If you uh-huh. get one of the back views, you can see there's a lot of green around it. There, there was a battery leakage on this one. Well, you know what I was reading is that the, with the 4000s is that that was pretty common. In fact, uh, I saw more than one ad where they said they either desoldered it or replaced it. Or they desoldered it entirely. So um, it's clearly an issue with that. And, you know, that's different 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 models have their, have their issues over time, don't they? Um but uh, neat machine. I I I didn't have very much time to play with this because shortly after they came out with one and we had it in the dealership, uh, Commodore folded and then we got rid of all of our Amiga stuff. So uh, uh, too did bad. You have to send it yeah. back to them. No, we didn't. We sold it. We ended up selling it. I think I ended up selling stuff uh, just kind of by word of mouth. We were just getting around, just telling people. Uh, it was before the internet, really, before the internet, public internet, anyway. Um, I seem to remember selling something on news groups, though. But that would have been in, in later days, so I, I don't know. Um, but we did sell it to somebody. I know that – now, this is some interesting history. We sold our 3,000, our only 3,000. We sold it to the developer of a game called Dune 2. Hmm. Dune oh. 2 <laughs> – was the forerunner to Command and Conquer. So this was the guy that designed Command and Conquer. He initially did Dune 2 on the Amiga. And when you played Dune 2, you were essentially playing Command and Conquer. So it was very similar. Hmm. So that was kind of cool. I actually delivered that one. He was up in upstate Pennsylvania. And beautiful house. My God, it was beautiful up there. And middle of winter. Set up his uh, Amiga 3000 and got him. I forget he had. A, I think he had a, either a Picasso board or something like that in there, 24-bit board. He did all his development on the Amiga 3000. Just amazing. And I had no idea who the guy was or you know who he was going through. But later on, I found out that that was the that was the same guy that did Command and Conquer, which is kind of fun. Well, <laughs> all right. That's, I guess that's my, all I got. Let's see what I got. Nothing too exciting. I found two different Amiga 500s, so. No, this is a really nice, what you would have expected to get as an Amiga 500. The first one here? So, yeah. So it says uh, Commodore Amiga 500 with original box and power supply. Yeah, so this looks to be a pretty decent example of um, yeah, one you can buy. Shipping's very cheap from Maryland. Um, yeah, 12 bucks to me. And yeah, 1077 for me. It's looking for $235 by it now, which, um, what do you think? That's maybe a little bit, but with the I think box, it's a little high. Uh, I think he'll probably be better off taking an offer. There's 13 people watching this, so somebody's interested. Yeah. Uh, what you got here, you got an aftermarket mouse, which is probably better because the Amiga mouse, when it, when it goes bad, it really goes bad. <laughs> uh, the aftermarket mice are a little more stable, a little more functional. And he has the um, video cable 
that looks like it goes to a 1084S monitors because it's got the round on one side. And because uh, I think the 1084s use a, like a nine pin DIN. Um, and it does is untested. So it's been in the closet for 20 years, person says, plugged in the power supply, yeah. the power light, and the Mega came on. So whoever gets this will probably have to have a Commodore 1084S monitor with the, the round uh, analog input. Or he's going you know, to view it in black and white. So it probably works, but you know. well, this, that's what I was just going to say. I was going to say unless the battery. He, I don't dead. have a monitor. He, he, he writes, "I Where don't have you? a monitor, so I'm unable to test it any further." And I thought, you know what? You can always just hook up a composite monitor, and, you know, composite TV, and just see if the black uh-huh. and white works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so the problem. So this is a live auction, so you can make an offer. So this person obviously doesn't think they'll get two hundred thirty-five dollars, which I think that's a little high. So just from what we've been talking about, I, I mean, I don't know. Personally, I, I don't, I wouldn't pay more than a hundred dollars for it. Do you think? I wouldn't. Not for a five hundred. Yeah. Not if it's not if it's it, there's no accelerator card or you yeah, know five hundred. Uh, no. So my and you got you got to keep in mind when you didn't have, especially depending on what stock means, because over time the Amiga five hundred changed. Like initially, it came with five twelve megs of RAM. And then later on, it came with uh, all 512K RAM, and it came later on. It came with one mega RAM, and the one mega RAM there, there were there were differences. And this is kind of weird. There was fast RAM and half fast RAM, and chip if RAM. you added yeah the chip RAM, and if you added the additional 512K, it would actually you would get a little bit of a speed up in the graphics and the operation of the machine. Um, I forget why that is, but it had to do with the refresh rate of the RAM that's on the motherboard. So when you added the additional RAM, it actually helped speed things up. Not just because you had more memory, but because it actually helped the architecture out. It's weird. Don't, don't yeah, ask. The, the chipset that used the chip RAM had a one megabyte, we'll call it a bandwidth. Um, so if it had all that available, it had plenty of available room to do all of its video and, right. and sound and all that stuff. But anything beyond that was called fast RAM. That's RAM only the CPU could touch. That was even faster. So CPU intensive stuff would use fast RAM, and it'll process a lot faster. Whereas all the graphics graphics and stuff was handled by uh, an up to one megabyte slot of chip RAM. Hmm. Yeah, you had to and get balanced. Yeah. That's right. And you just know with the smart Alex that were that were working at Commodore, and if you read anything about the designers, they really were kind of snarky and fun on you know you just know that half-assed ram right you just <laughs> yeah. know that that you know, you know what they meant yeah because that was another one of those design decisions that they weren't allowed to actually make you know they didn't like the idea of having a slower ram as part of the stock machine so you know so they could say oh it's half-assed ram mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so my uh, sensors so my second one is actually pretty interesting because, uh, as I say, I only found one other uh, Amiga 2000, and I found this one. So this is vintage Commodore Amiga A2000 computer with 1084S monitor and KKQ-E94YC set. Oh, So it's $400, buy it now, with a, but free local pickup. So you have to go get it in uh, Gardner, Kansas. But uh, it has a hard drive, and, um, and oh, it works. Okay. But not uh, reliably. An external SCSI hard drive. Yeah, it means it has to have the SCSI card inside of it. So the person um, 
you know, it didn't. They explain, which is good. That they that it, lots of good pictures. They didn't uh, didn't work at first, and then they tried it multiple times with power ons and such, and then finally got it to boot up. So probably the hard drive is flaky. Um, well, I'm looking at the pictures. I do not see the hard drive controller. It would have to have a um, a SCSI controller in one of the slots somewhere. Well, if I can comment, look at this. No, don't no commenting. All right. Well, the, <laughs> the front of the machine lists this as an Amiga twenty five hundred. Huh? Really? Now, if that's the case, oh. then it would have an onboard SCSI, and ah, it would have okay. an accelerator card as well. Yeah, there it is. Okay, I see the check open that out. How come they're not Good. calling it that? Because that's actually um, he probably doesn't know what he has. Makes it more des- way more desirable. This person's and missing out on fines by calling it a 2000, he? aren't they? Okay, there it is. I, I couldn't see it in the shadow. I was looking at the small pictures. Yes, he does have uh, an external SCSI card interface. So, yeah, that the box is plug into that. That, that. that picture, there's a picture on there that shows a card that says A2091. That is the SCSI card. That yep. is That is a... Oh, what is that? Yeah. Oh, oh, look at this. It's actually a dual card. I didn't know that. Yeah, Jeff. Built-in built in XTIDE and SCSI header. Why didn't you know that, Jeff? Because <laughs> I, I was looking at the tiny pictures. I didn't I, – he's well, you, using some sort of third-party picture manager, and I had my um, the, my JavaScript blocker blocking it so i couldn't make big pictures till now the big thing the too big... is uh the fact that you have to you have to go pick it up in gardner kansas isn't gonna i, I don't know why you'd want to sell something like this and not be not be reasonable come on you, you can't attract very much many people to buy it that way that's so funny that this i've i've forgotten so much over the years this also had memory on board the I hard mean, drive card enough- yeah, it wasn't enough just to put just to make it a, a you could install a hard drive on the card, then you had a SCSI pass through for the back, and then on top of that, you had sixteen dip sockets that could do either half, one or two megabytes of RAM. Oh and that's, that would add that's to the, the accelerator RAM. card. That's right. The whole It's like an all in one card almost. Now this yeah. is being sold by listed for UKC. That has sixteen hundred eleven feedback, hundred percent. So they're apparently a third party eBay vendor or whatever. Yet they won't ship this for the person. Or I don't understand because all you're doing is, you know, yeah, it's a hassle, but make the people pay for it. Well, I don't know. You know, some of his maybe he doesn't uh, sell a bunch of heavy items like this. Yeah. One of his other auctions is a forty five degree adjustable elbow for uh, <laughs> uh, exhaust gas vent. So he's very diversified. <laughs> oh, and also a 65 Pontiac Bonneville convertible. Oh, s- convertible. Yeah, hey, I don't ship that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, obviously, if I was selling something like that, I, I mean, I guess it's common sense. You, you would ship this in two boxes. I mean, I would pack the display separately and then the computer separately. I would anyway at this point because, I don't know, you can't trust. <laughs> he has a MacBook for sale. Huh? He has the MacBook uh, Core 2 Duo 2 for sale. Awesome. <laughs> but there you go. I think this is a pretty interesting machine other than the limit. You it know, is. you got to go to Gardner, Kansas. And maybe yeah, worth 400 bucks even in its, in its condition, yeah. right? That's kind of a rare it's machine. It's not bad considering everything you get, the accelerator and stuff. I'd say that's pretty fair. And correct me yeah, if I'm wrong, but so. this 2500 for the most part, gives you the abilities that a lot of the later machines, other than its limitations of processor, 
right? Even though it's an earlier well, machine. Well, the 2500 is basically a, a, an Amiga <clears throat> 2000 pre-expanded with a faster CPU and uh, more memory and, and hard drive capabilities. Well, like for instance, the 2000 didn't have a hard drive. Wouldn't it be equivalent to like the 1200 in most? No, it's most missing things? the uh, the high end graphics chipset, the uh, the AGA chipset. Okay, which stands for gra- Advanced Graphic Architecture. And what is the original style? The ECS enhanced chip set, right? Yeah. But you so, know, yeah, you it, got you got those bus slots in the in the twenty five hundred uh, to expand, and of course, you know the the video slot that lets you put in the video toaster. Um, most people that ended up getting the video toaster, particularly videographers, they would just buy the twenty five hundred package. Because then you got your full acceleration, you got enough memory to work with, and you had the the box that you could actually plug the video toaster into. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing is, is you had enough room to actually do internal hard drives. You didn't have to have a bunch of hard drives hanging out outside and that kind of thing. Nifty. Yeah, my, my and you know what? The real bonus here? Look, look at this. <laughs> eBay says that I can own this for $37 for 12 months. So and That's what I was know? thinking. You should really get it. <laughs> <laughs> what a deal alright uh, how are we doing on time here we're doing pretty good but we're coming up to it so I think we're 12 hours over right now so yeah. so Jeff why don't you take us into we got some feedback yes we did people we're wrote getting more and more of it it's, it's coming in um, yeah we're getting lots of likes on Facebook I yes. like that um, a, a gentleman named Andrew Quinn from New Zealand I almost called him an Aussie. He'd probably stop listening to us if I did that. Um, he he mentioned about uh, our last episode, episode seven, where we were dis- where I was discussing the MFM drives and um, that MFM adapter. I'm hoping to get sometime. And I mentioned the device called the Fred F R E H D for the TRS eighty. Um, he cleared up some of the stuff that I wasn't quite sure about. Um, the, whereas I'm looking for something that emulates. An MFM drive that can hook into an existing controller, the FRED emulates from the controller all the way to the drive. So anything that you can adapt from the controller end, uh, the FRED can also be used for in any other system that would normally accept a hard drive controller. You would just probably have to do some wiring, difference in wiring to, to this thing to match up with whatever device you have that would have an MFM controller along with the drive. The, the Fred would replace both components instead of uh, just one. And he talks about how um, it emulates a Western Digital 1010 hard disk controller with a drive, and that they've tried it already or yeah, with, with a K-Pro 2 and a K-Pro 4 by adapting it to the, where a controller would go in the K-Pro. So that's interesting to know. Uh, will I get one? Maybe. Um, but I'm, I'm still looking for just a drive emulator. Let's see here. Where was I? I scrolled off the screen here. And uh, another person who wrote us a very long email, and I'm only going to read through some highlights of this. Uh, Joaquin Cruz. Um, he's, yeah. <laughs> Joaquin Cruz, he's written to us before. Um, and, and what he he's telling us that he, he enjoys the podcast and he likes the knowledgeable, knowledgeable, insightful guests. I guess he's talking about you, Chuck, um, <laughs> and, and Adam and, and, and who else was guest with us. Um, 
<laughs> but he wanted to just mention something like a different perspective on personal computing, where we talk about these things that we can go into a retail store and buy them and bring them home. Um, he mentions how he was you know, too poor to buy a, a proper personal computer. But when he was working on some things at, at college, he was working on, quote, personal computing in the Unix workstation labs. So he had available to him for use a bunch of Next stations, SunSpark stations, and SGI Irix boxes. And that's what he was talking about, the opportunity for personal computing, not by buying something you buy at Sears or JCPenney or Electronics Boutique, but something that you can pick up used from your local colleges that may be getting rid of them, these networked um, workstations and how people can you know, grab one of those, throw in, work with an old operating system and do personal computing on it. Um, so that, that's an interesting way of looking at personal computing. I, I had a friend who um, was going to college at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York. And they have a very extreme computer and technology program up there. And uh, he showed me around. Uh, this would have been probably about 1989. And the stuff that I saw that day was stuff that we later saw on desktops maybe five, six years later. Um, they had a direct connect to ARPANET at the time. Um, the rudimentary gopher and, and rudiment, very rudimentary web was forming. And... Uh, some of those stations were vector graphics stations, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Um, but all of them, invariably all of them, would just connect to a mainframe. And uh, you did everything through basically the, the, the big system. Um, individual PCs were not yet a thing in university, uh, and they weren't for a long time. And you'd see these these workstations or graphics workstations and whatnot that they had there, and that was just... Uh, what a what a way to be to experience computing, especially for the first time there, Joaquin. Because that's uh, I know that my first computers that I saw were um, teletype type computers. They all they did was uh, print on paper, and they connected through phone lines to the mainframe at a uh, at at a, uh, a high school I went to. Um, so to actually see some of the uh, the Irixes and whatnot, the Spark Stations and the Next. I drooled about the Next. I always wanted one of those. Hmm. Didn't you want a Next? Come on, Jeff, be honest. Didn't you want a Next? <laughs> yeah, but it was one of those that were so far out and left field for me that I wasn't focused on it all the time. But I did uh-huh. pick up an SGI Indigo 2 myself um, about a decade or so ago. I was, it was given to me. I got two of them. Uh, but they, and they were used for video production. And it's the same thing that he's talking about. It could still be used as a personal computer. Now, the ones I had had uh, password-protected operating system. I didn't know how to get past that, so I actually went on eBay and bought a brand-new installation set of Irix uh, for it and reinstalled the operating system. Um, and now, it, other than really weird monitor requirements, um, it it works like you know a, a home computer in a way it's just you know, a completely different software uh, but i'm sure there's plenty of support for it elsewhere i just really didn't look into it any further than saying i wanted to get mine running just so i can say i got it running just you know take a look at the capabilities but you know joaquin brings up a good point this is personal computing for some people yes. and even though it's different than everything else it's still an aspect of personal computing especially vintage personal computing but especially when that's the first time you've ever really worked with the machine is when you hit college, and back yeah, then too, that was that was typical for a lot of people. A lot of people didn't have computers, 
you know, 20, 30 years ago, they just didn't have personal computers. They had no reason yeah. to have one. And then they'd end up taking a class or whatever that required them to use it in college, and then they'd see these things. And, and then you have a Linux <clears throat> environment. You have to write and compile your own programs. You, know, right. you develop a career just off of that alone. And I was going to say, Chuck, so don't groan, but <laughs> my experience was like yours walking to a lab. In my case, and I was in college. I was just in community college, so and I was looking for a job. And so through the college, I got a job at a, at a computer store. And this, so this was uh, October, November, 1986. And I, and so this is my first uh, exposure to Macintoshes. And, um, and even though we sold the store, big store in Frederick, Maryland, um, you know, we sold IBMs and IBM compatibles and, and, and Apple. So Apple twos and stuff, but most everybody did all the productivity stuff in the store on Macs. So as far as from a productivity standpoint of using Macs and laser writer printers and they were networked together and, um, you know, hard drive and just all that stuff. I see to me, I was like, wow, this is the future. This is the way all the computers are supposed to should all work in the future, which was kind of true. <laughs> Cause it's kind of how we do all we work now together and, yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. But so that was, you know, and that's why I fell in love with the Mac and stuck with it, even though, you know, it had its limitations then and were so expensive. Well, I'll tell you if the Mac had come out at nine ninety nine like they had planned, mm-hmm. I would have been an Apple user. I would have been an Apple user a long, long time ago. When I first saw that machine, uh, I think it was uh, early, early in, in 19, it was 1984. Oh, yeah. Um, way too I, much. I was blown away, and then I saw the price, and it just made me sick to my stomach. Because I yeah. knew just by looking at it, just like uh, uh, Steve Jobs once wrote himself, and also was, you know, they, when they went to Xerox Park to take a look at the first graphical operating systems they knew right away that that was the future they knew that Mm -hmm. was exactly what it was i didn't even know such a thing existed until the mac came out until we saw this demonstration um at a computer show and i went wow that's it this is it and then i looked at the price and i'm like you know that's a lot of lawns to mow okay well and (laughs) and also to your point so this is uh, this is debatable but in my opinion too the mass public like I said, if, if they'd come out at a certain price point and you had seen it then or whatever, this really didn't happen for the masses until Windows 95. Because then you could essentially have a Mac, if you will, you know, on your cheap PC clone. So now you did have an inexpensive you know, Mac in a lot of ways. David, you know, it's, it's like I was saying before, though. Before Windows 95, it wasn't okay to have a business machine have the kinds of things the Amiga or even the Mac had. It wasn't okay. It wasn't okay to have sound. Yeah. That made it a game machine. But then all of a sudden when Microsoft came up with terms like uh, multimedia, actually I think that was Compaq also, but nonetheless... Well, because of the CD, for CD compatibility and stuff is what drove that finally. You had Compaq making it okay to have sound by with business audio. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, it was okay, and we, I think people had to reach a level where um, you were now separating video games from computing, and it was okay to have the kinds of things that maybe okay, yeah, video games had had for years in your computer. Because after all, I mean, imagine if today you still had people running around saying, well, you know, I, I really, I, I don't need all that color. You know, I, I don't need all that stuff. But there were people back then that were saying that. Yeah. 
You know, that they, they were literally saying, well, you know, I don't need all, I don't need a sound, I don't, I don't need all that color. I mean, I, you can't even imagine that sort of mindset today. That, that wouldn't even exist. But the applications started coming around where all of a sudden color was a big deal. Color printing, inkjet printers were coming out that right. were doing color for the first time that was affordable. Now you could really justify having all of that sort of thing. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that Windows 95 absolutely made it okay to have the kinds of things that, uh, well, other platforms, the, the Amiga, the Mac, the, the uh, ST, had had for years. Right. Um, but, you know, hey, uh, not everybody is an early adopter, right? I mean, there, it takes a special kind. And Jeff knows this, right, Jeff? It takes Absolutely. a special kind of user to put up with the kinds of things that you'd have to put up with with the ST and the Amiga. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if I had to deal with another guru meditation error, uh, which was a common error on the Amiga, I think I'd lose my mind. <laughs> I well, still get them in emulation. And it's back to the thing um, about marketing, too, which unfortunately just, uh, you know, the ST series and the Amiga, there are plenty of people, me uh, included in that, that just weren't aware enough, you know, about about those, you know, options. Uh, that's absolutely true. I think that once people saw, they had to see somebody else do it, is what mm. it had to come down to. You had to have somebody else that was doing because think about what Windows users were dealing with in Windows 3.1 compared to Windows 95. Yeah, I would have um, never switched to that from, from the Mac right. platform. See, and you I didn't. Yeah, it, the 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 graphic clearly Microsoft needed you know graphic artists and and that and they got those. That's what that's what helped them prepare because they looked over their shoulder at Mac and went, "Wow, what are they doing right?" But Windows 3.1.1 had something for the PC. And it had network capability, which was huge. That's what really broke open Windows. It wasn't 95. It was Windows 3.1.1. And for years, through the 90s, businesses used Windows 3.1.1 years after Windows 95 came out, simply because that was when they got into it and they saw no reason to upgrade yet. But when the applications started, you started seeing the advantages of these applications. Um, you started seeing the advantages of having more color and being able to do things uh, in a multitasking way. And then, then, then they started relent. It's, it, it's the same kind of problem that Microsoft has today, getting people to upgrade from Windows 7. Well, why? Well, why should I go to Windows 10? What is Windows 10 really going to give me? And so instead, Microsoft is just making it a recommended update, and eventually I imagine they're going to just force push it to everybody. But the point is for businesses, businesses have a different mindset than, than home users, and they have different needs. Um, when I worked for General Electric, we would have to update computers on a cycle of anywhere from five to seven years in certain organizations. And, you know, they have to plan ahead, and they have to worry about compatibility with their existing software and their existing systems. And so a lot of times you're going to find – machines still running some of them are probably out there still running xp and vista at this point um, because they haven't yet reached the cycle that they need to reach to get replaced um so so there's a little bit of that there's a little bit of that that corporate side that that says you know things are working now let's not you know let's not introduce an unknown um mm -hmm. but uh uh you know I, I think the home users were a different situation in that the business users were driving the machines uh, I mean, let's face it. If you were going to spend what today would be what four or five thousand dollars on a computer, yeah, what unthinkable. Would you want? <laughs> nowadays, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, no one ever got fired for buying IBM, as the saying. And you know, if IBM said that the or standards, Microsoft, yeah, right. If IBM says that the standard is four colors, well, then you'll put up with four colors because that's IBM said it. And, and or Cisco, all right? Well, yeah, <laughs> or Cisco. <laughs> all right, we're gonna uh, yeah. we're gonna wrap it up. We have we have done a long show, so it should be pretty quick editing. No one cursed, right? No one cursed in the show. Good, so we can we can wrap it up quick tonight. I so, well, we had half fast memory, but that's oh, not it. Darn it. <laughs> now I got to go through the whole thing and edit those out. Nah. Well, Chuck, thanks again for being on. Thanks, guys, for having me. That was fun. It was fun. Yep. And uh, so eBay Show 9, our next show, will be released on Friday, February 19th. And we'll be continuing our coverage of the 32-bit GUI computers. And we're going to be covering the Compact Desk Pro 386, as well as some other 386-based computers. And we'll discuss why we're specifically talking about the Compact Desk Pro 386 a little bit more. And also, we'll touch on Windows 386. So uh, find out or find all of our show notes at history at personalcomputing.com. Send your feedback, either written or by all means record something and send it to feedback at history at personalcomputing.com. Uh, tell someone about us, review us on iTunes. We need those things. Please. We need some reviews at iTunes and, and spread the word. Like us on Facebook and uh, tweet us on Twitter and plus us on Google plus uh, and, and re- read us on Reddit. I, I don't yeah. know. And make a and fan still page. We're still asking for MySpace. Make a fan page on MySpace, too, for us. <laughs> Four episodes ago. <laughs> Promote us on MySpace. Start a free blog. at you know, on the wall on your favorite PBS. On Blogger, uh, all about us. So anyway, that's it for today's show. Remember, caveat emptor, or let the buyer beware. And please play with your old computers, or find them a new home. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Hi, Chuck. Hi. <laughs> Your knickknack, just check my feedback, A plus plus.